Well, ahoy there, mateys. Welcome aboard my cruise liner to the edge of eternity. Matt Pagel here, once again, captaining this cursed and damned ship, known as the Occasionalists, into the final leg of Sci-Fi September. That is right, this is our last episode of Sci-Fi September, and it has been a fun month uh, to go through the history of sci-fi, get into some movie reviews, uh, talk about Forbidden Planet was really excellent, and I'm really happy to wrap up with this particular movie, which is really, which really is very much in um, in my wheelhouse of sci-fi and uh, and kind of horror movie horror adjacent movies that I've been into recently. And we're going to be talking about the and I, I actually misquote I actually uh, misplaced this movie in terms of its timeline, um, which is appropriate uh, given the subject matter of this movie. But I thought it was from 2019. It's actually from 2009, and that actually, I'm kind of kicking myself that it took me this long to get around to seeing this movie, because it's pretty fantastic. I'll tell you that right off the rip. Um, this is a pretty cool movie, and I'm talking about, again, the 2009 movie, Triangle. We'll be doing a full review of this, uh, but first we'll get into the uh, <clears throat> some of the production details. Uh, again, 2009 movie, and this is, <laughs> I'm going to... Make note here that this is important, that this is an Australian production uh, with uh, with some help from the British, um, and I'll get into that distinction. I'll get into why that's important. Uh, this was an Icon Pictures production. It's, I'm not sure if they still do movies, but it was uh, uh, Mel Gibson's uh, production company. Yeah, so that Mel Gibson, the very same Mel Gibson. Um it's directed, written and directed by Christopher Smith, um, English guy who you might. He has some movies and TV shows and miniseries and things that I'm familiar with. But other than this movie, the only other thing I've seen that Christopher Smith has done is called Severance. Um, a kind of horror, a workplace horror black comedy, um, I guess is the best way to put it, with uh, Laura Harris and Danny Dyer. It's actually a pretty solid movie as well. So at least in terms of the um, of what I've seen of Christopher Smith thus far, uh, for me, he's definitely uh, he's hitting a thousand uh, thus far. Um, I haven't uh, gotten into much of his other work, but um, uh, but for sure Severance is pretty solid. And uh, his follow-up to Severance, this movie, Triangle, uh, like I said, it's a very solid movie. And we'll get into the why there here in a little bit. Um, so again, written and directed by Christopher Smith. Uh, it stars Melissa George as our protagonist, Jess. Um, Joshua McIver as Melissa George, as uh, Jess's son, Tommy. Uh, Michael Dorman as Greg. You might know Michael Dorman from several other TV shows like Patriot and more recently uh, Joe Pickett. Uh, he is the, in fact, the uh, titular Joe Pickett. Or is it eponymous or titular? I can't remember. I think it's titular. Uh, Joe Pickett. Uh, it also stars Henry Nixon as Downey. Don't know who Henry Nixon is. Uh, he seems to be completely, uh, at this point, completely only known in Australia. Rachel Carpani as Sally, who's popped up in a few American things, but again, mostly uh, in Australia and the UK. Emma Lung as Heather. Um, seems to be a, a fairly big star in Australia, but someone I'm not terribly familiar with, though she has popped up in a few uh, U.S. productions, but uh, nothing that I've seen. And I think that is it on the cast. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry, one, one more note here. Uh, there is a walking, talking block of wood uh, known as Liam Hemsworth. Who plays Victor? Um, <laughs> I am. I will always. I, I will always be very upfront about uh, about certain performers that I don't like, and Liam Hems Liam Hemsworth is one of those performers I don't like. I he is my least favorite of the Hemsworths, um, and I. It just I don't know. He's 
He's totally fine in this movie. I, I, will, I will get off. I'll get off the jump. Just say that right off the jump that he's totally fine in this movie. But it's also because he's not asked to say a lot. Um, let's just put it that way. But I've never particularly liked Liam Hemsworth. I think he's the the least charismatic and the least gifted of his of his brothers. Um, and you'd be surprised. I actually will rank Luke Hemsworth as being the best Hemsworth in terms of acting and charisma. Obviously, Chris Hemsworth has the most star power and, and charisma, but I always enjoy when Luke Hemsworth pops up in something. He's always pretty great. Um, so Liam is the least of the Hemsworths for me, but he's totally fine in this movie. Um, he And this, is, this would have been a very early, one of his first um, sort of... Um, major film credits at this point in time in his life. I bet he was probably only like 20 or 21 uh, when this movie got made. So so there you go. There's your there's your principal cast. Uh, just real quickly, again, directed by Chris, written and directed by Christopher Smith, starring Melissa George, Joshua McIver, Michael Dorman, Henry Nixon, Rachel Carpani, Emma Lung, and Liam Hemsworth. Now, in the previous episode, I had started in with the subgenres first, um, when we did uh, Forbidden Planet, but I think I'm going to start with the um, uh, with the actually, you know, take that back. I, I think I got into more of the history of, of um, Forbidden Planet. There's obviously not like this movie obviously isn't important in the history of film necessarily, but I do want to get to a little bit of the of a detailed synopsis first because I think when I when I break down the subgenres that this belongs to, I'm going to get into an explanation for this movie because it is very it can be kind of confusing. Um, this is one of those movies, a lot like, a lot like Primer, that is. It's kind of useful to like watch it once, maybe even read something, you know, some kind of breakdown that someone had, and then watch it again. Um, once you're aware of things to look for, there are. Um, this movie is rife with visual clues, and um, you know, there's vi- mostly visual clues, but there's also story beats and dialogue and stuff that you need to pay attention to. That. Uh, give you hints as to as to the true nature of what is actually happening so i'll give you the general synopsis here um triangle follows the story of a single mother named jess who joins a group of friends on a sailing trip in the quote-unquote atlantic ocean again something we'll talk about a little bit later uh when a violent storm suddenly capsizes their yacht the group of friends finds themselves stranded in the middle of the ocean and in desperate need of rescue after several hours, they are miraculously saved by uh, a mysterious and abandoned ocean liner, um, seemingly adrift in the open sea. As they abor- as they board the ship, they discover eerie signs of previous of a previous long abandoned presence. Strange occurrences soon intensify, and the group begins to realize that they are not alone in the ship. They must confront a series of bizarre and terrifying events as they try to figure out how to escape this nightmarish vessel. Uh, the movie takes a mind-bending turn as Jess experiences a series of disturbing and inexplicable deja vu moments. She su- she soon realizes the ship is caught in a time loop and the events are repeating themselves. Jess must navigate the terrifying and confusing loop to uncover the truth about her ship, her companions, and the supernatural forces at play. Um, oh, th- probably should have started with this. Uh, spoilers abound for this movie. Um, you know, clearly I didn't even put the warning ahead of the the previous uh, review of Forbidden Planet because I mean it's a sixty-plus-year-old movie. If you are unaware of it at this point in time, then you never were going to be aware of it. Um, this one probably should have put that. I don't think this. I don't think it's a. It becomes apparent right off the bat that this movie is a time loop movie, and uh, <clears throat> so I don't really feel bad about kind of letting you in on a little bit of that. Uh, we so this is again spoilers abound if you are. 
uh, spoiler adverse, then maybe you, uh, I don't know, stop here, watch the watch the movie, then come back and finish up the rest of this podcast. But uh, this is your last warning because we're definitely going to be getting into the details of, of the movie here. All right, so by now you've paused the podcast to go watch the movie, and now you've come back. Uh, fantastic. So let's get into the subgenres then. I'll, I'll give the, the gen, here's the, it's, it's a two subgenre, two sci-fi subgenre movie. It's a time slip movie, and it's also new weird. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll break this down much more detailed here. Like I said, the, the, the subgenre breakdown is going to give you kind of the, it's going to, I'm going to further break down the movie for you. So it's a time slip movie, right? And <clears throat> this, dif- this is easily differentiated from time travel because, the it, to me at least, and I think not to me, I think the general consensus on time slip versus time travel, there has to be intention with time travel, right? Like someone is is controlling, be it Back to the Future, they are trying to travel back in time, or you're know, trying to travel forward in time. In Time Cop, right, the whole point of this agency is to travel back in time to uh, you know to to prevent criminals from altering uh, altering past events, right? Like that, there is intention. With time travel, with time slip, there's no intention. It's something that is someone is experiencing. You know, maybe something they're doing is causing it, right? Like in, uh, as we mentioned previously, in Synchronic, um, you know, the drugs that they're doing are causing this. So, I mean, it is they are indirectly causing the time travel experience, but they're not in control of it. There's no intent with it. So, <clears throat> the fact that Jess is stuck in a time loop, she's not doing this on purpose. It's something that she's experiencing and has very minimal control over. In fact, the only way that she can sort of um, understand the time loop better is to let it happen to her, right? The time loop in this case is multifaceted. And and as I'll explain here, it's kind of not even actually a time loop. The title of the movie is probably the better explanation for what this is. But this time loop is multifaceted. And she has to sort of continuously sink into the next level uh, to to figure out the rules of the time loop and the you know the, maybe the general parameters of what she can and can't do. I guess that's also rules. Um, so she is she is not time. You know, she, so time is being she's experiencing this sort of this this time loop, but not really responsible for it. And then, as we'll explain here in a second, Jess is not actually time traveling anywhere. Um, and this is this sort of even though we have a time loop or a causal loop, if that's what you want to call it, if you don't want to, if you <clears throat> if you don't want to bring the time aspect into it, I guess you could call it a causal loop, whatever. But either way, Jess is not actually time traveling, um, so that's another reason why it can't be a time travel story, because she's not going back in time or forward in time for that matter. Um, so, and that's why, and that's why it, this is a new weird science fiction movie. Jess is not time traveling. She is in purgatory. Um, and, and there's, again, I'll get into more details about her her being in purgatory, but she is experiencing this as sort of, as sort of one half punishment and one half, um, I guess it, it can't be a full punishment because then it would be hell, but one half punishment and one half kind of opportunity for her to, find her way out of this purgatory um you know the continuation these deja vu moments as we mentioned and she realizes she's caught in a time loop 
these deja vu moments of her and all of her um all, all, all of the survivors of the of the ship crashing are eventually killed one by one on the ship in, in increasingly bizarre and violent manners and this is all something that she's experiencing as sort of a punishment um so there is so again there is no time traveling she is stuck in purgatory now and i think <clears throat> another another reason why this belongs I, I think that I think there's like some then like the knee jerk is sort of like to place it more into horror. Obviously, it has horror elements in in it. It pays homage to some excellent horror movies of the past, which we'll get into. Um, but again, I think that this still fits very firmly into new weird. Um, and I'll this is why there are characteristics of new weird that are very very present in this particular movie. So one of the big characteristics of new weird: blending of science fiction and supernatural elements. New weird stories often incorporate both scientific ideas and supernatural occurrences. Um, there's a general disregard for the genre boundaries, right? If you were to dis- if you were to sort of take all of the key genres and subgenres of this, it, you know, it's a time slip movie, it's a supernatural thriller, it's a murder mystery, and it's a religious parable, all at the same time. All of those kind of combined are much more than something that is just like a horror movie. Right than than uh than a general uh, you know peop- someone on a boat someone on a scary boat stalking people and killing them like if there's more to it than that it's just a piece of it. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of surreal dreamlike imagery right the settings and visuals in New Weird have a, a very often a hallucinatory or imagined quality to them. Sometimes they verge in the grotesque. Um, the world itself feels very unsettling. So. Um, you know, we go from these serene waters off the coast of "quote unquote" Florida, um, then we have this very obviously supernatural, uh, or at the very least, unnatural storm. Then this massive cruise liner quite literally appears from out of out of the blinding sunlight, um, seemingly out of nowhere, and the ship itself has this very mythological and supernatural origin. Right, the the ship is named the Aeolus, um, after the Greek god of the uh, Greek god of the winds. Um, and also the, it's also the father of Sisyphus, which, uh, will become important as we dig farther into the story. Um, so there's, so there's a lot of, so there's a lot of, and, and a lot of that when it, when it comes to Jess's point of view, she literally is waking up from sleep and talking about the dreams that she had that are, that are giving her these deja vu feelings. So there's, so that fits in, right? There's, um, I, I would put this as non-traditional main characters. Um, the protagonists are often outsiders or outcasts. Um, they're, they're some kind... They don't really fit into society necessarily. Characters are very emotionally flawed, unstable, detached, something along those lines, right? And Jess, in this case, because we are talking about a, a causal loop, time loop, or time triangle movie, um, Jess is both protagonist and antagonist in this movie. She is both the victim and the stalker. She is mentally unstable and guilt-ridden. She is both a good mother and a terrible mother. Um, it's very—it's not very often you have a movie where the where the main character is kind of is both the is both the cause and um, I guess the cause and effect of all their problems, right? In, in such a profound and often very violent way. Um, so you know this this helps again keep it more less out of less horror and more into the new weird. Um, there's a, a focus on alienation. Right? There's a lot of themes of not belonging, loneliness, difficulty connecting with others. 
Um, maybe there's even like a discomfort with uh, with normal society or whatever, you know, in in the in our main characters. Um, and we get we get like peaks of this for sure. Jess does not fit in with the group. Um, in this group of Downey, Sally, Greg, um, and Victor, everyone else is everyone else has known Greg forever, or um, you know, Victor's in the essentially the kind of the employ of Greg. Um, they're they're clearly you know Greg owns this you know rather nice yacht. Um, so Greg, uh, Downey, and Sally are all kind of from more of like upper crust. And uh, it's noted that Jess is, you know, she's a single mother and a waitress, right? She just doesn't, she's not quite a member of this group. And because of her, her son has special needs, he's autistic um, and probably has some other, um, uh, you know, probably some other like spectrum issues. Um, there's this greater sense that because of these special needs, she's not really a fully functioning member of like normal society, right? She's immediately kind of has other obstacles to overcome with her son that, that are putting her in a different place. And then even then on the ship, she is the only one that is aware of the time loop of, of what's happening. So everyone else thinks that she's crazy, even though she's experiencing this, um, these increasingly like bizarre uh, acts of violent deja vu. Um, she's the only one that has any kind of any kind of grasp on the situation. So even in the, even in the, the plot, she's, um, she's alienated from everyone else. Um, there's unconventional storytelling, right? Plots are nonlinear, ambiguous, avant-garde, uh, causality and logical world building gives way to surreal imagery. Um, and in this case, I'm going to, I'm going to return to this part here in a second. Uh, but in this case, you, this movie is a time loop, a time triangle and a time layer cake all in one. Um, it's really not until the end that we it's not until the end of the movie that we realize that there real there is no beginning or end to this particular movie um i mean obviously there is because there just has to be but again I'll, I'll get into i'll return to this in a little bit um there's also a dark atmosphere right despite some kind of sometimes fantastical or even like a, a you know gorgeous settings there's like a gloomy bleak tone right like there's there's a lot of violence and suffering and, and a general sense of unease throughout the course of the movie or story, but in this case, course of the movie. So in this case, obviously like the, you know, the setting itself, like we're on this very, we're on this, you know, seemingly uh, this ocean liner that is powering itself and, you know, moving, whatever. But once we get on the ship, you know, there's hints of something worse. Um, first off, it's just very empty. Like there's no one on it. And when we do see things, there's like blood streaks and blood stains. There's um, there's evidence of some kind, you know, of general sort of um, something happened there. Like there's trash and stuff strewn about um, in certain places. There's just a, like a lot of there's a lot going on on the ship that makes you feel like that gives you this general sense of unease. And even then, the the darkness of the story is very very complete from beginning to end uh you know once we once we get to the end of the movie and we feel like the loop is about to be closed uh the jess and the audience are given the realization that the loop is significantly or the triangle is significantly larger than we first realized and you know it's possibly infinite or it is infinite um so like there's the the ending itself just has this gloomy bleakness to it um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll get into a little bit more of that here in a second, but 
Yeah, so I think that I, I think that you know time slip is an obvious one. I think I think what keeps this from being a straight horror movie is are these sort of characteristics that really are um, are unique to the new weird science fiction genre. And I and I do think that that's sort of that's sort of the kind of the not I wouldn't say the goal, but maybe one of the explorations of new weird is to kind of see how we can press up against how close we can press up against horror without becoming without like completely diving into the horror genre right like how close can we get to how close can we can we get in, in, into a um a murder mystery without just making it a straight slasher film right and in this case they get very very close um they get very very close so again time slip new weird i think those are the only sci-fi subgenres that qualify and i think if you were to if you wanted to you could tack on um you know the stalker slasher uh horror subgenre as a kind of a i'll, I'll call those the tertiary and and auxiliary if you will uh subgenres that you could attack onto this but time slip and new weird are um at the forefront here okay i want to i do want to return to the part here uh the unconventional storytelling kind of section of of what I just went through because I think that is the main separator for why this isn't um, just a straightforward, uh, you know, slasher, stalker kind of movie that would put it more in the horror realm. Um, As I called it, it's a time loop and time triangle and time layer cake kind of all sitting on top of each other. And I think that triangle is an apt name for this movie because I, I think the time loop structure is not exactly a loop. I do think that if you were to sort of draw this out, on, a, on some kind of infographic, it would look like a triangle. Um, once we realize that, once we realize that we are in a time loop movie, and once we kind of get through the first, um, our first iteration, our first view of what's going on, we realize that there are actually three versions of Jess on this boat at any given time. It doesn't matter as, as if anything's happening on the boat. There are three Jesses on the boat, and because because there I'll, I'll, I'll name the three jesses there's new jess who has just arrived on the boat there's savior jess who is trying to figure out how to save everyone and then as quoted by the director the director and writer christopher smith there is mean jess who is as it turns out spoiler alert again mean jess is the is the unknown stalker on the boat killing everybody so be, this isn't a time loop though because New Jess, New Jess is unaware of, New Jess is unaware of Savior Jess, and Savior Jess is not fully aware of Mean Jess. Mean Jess is fully aware of all of the Jesses on on the boat at any given time. Um, so three Jesses, and they're all at three different points of the triangle, heading towards the next level of the triangle, downward or upward, however you want to view it. If you literally take a triangle, draw it out, it can be isosceles or equilateral doesn't matter one jess is at one point let's just say new jess is at the lower right savior jess is at the top point mean jess is at the is at the middle new jess has to climb the triangle to become savior jess savior jess has to then descend the triangle to become mean jess mean jess has to then cross the triangle the bottom part of the triangle to um, confront new jess and give her the information that she needs to then reset the triangle and start the and start things over again. So, <clears throat> three Jesses, three different points of the triangle, 
And they're all heading towards the next level. And there is an actual reset in this. Every time Jess falls asleep, um, things reset. And her knowledge of what what has happened feels more like a dream. Um, not important. There, We'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, only mean Jess, the last, the final Jess, only mean Jess being ejected from the ship gives her all of the information she needs to see the triangle in its entirety. Um, so it is sort of, um, so again, thinking about this triangle going from lower right to top to bottom left and then back over to the lower right in an equilateral sense. Once, once mean Jess encounters new Jess, when, you know, after the first, uh, after the first bit of action, mean Jess gets ejected from the boat and she sees everything kind of from the outside. New Jess gets set on her path up to become savior Jess. Savior Jess begins her descent down on the path to become mean Jess. Um, however, only until mean Jess relives this, this is confusing. I apologize, but I think this is the, I mean, literally this is the most straightforward. I can explain this. Um, I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll probably make an infographic with this, um, uh, and put a, put up a little soundbite. Uh, anyway, however, only until mean Jess relives her trauma and therefore her punishment, does she realize how thoroughly stuck in the triangle she is? Um, this is the, as I mentioned before, the sh- name of the ship is the Aeolus. Um, and Aeolus is the father of, is the Greek god of winds and, and, and uh, he's like son of Poseidon or something. Um, but uh, one of Aeolus's children is Sisyphus, and Sisyphus is noted is very a very famous uh, you know Greek uh, part of a very famous Greek legend. He's the king who um, cheated death, and his punishment is pushing a boulder uphill because of that sort of breaking that deal with death and his own hubris. He pushes the boulder uphill, and then it just rolls back down, and he has to do it every single day for the rest of eternity. So. Jess is doing this. Jess is Jess is now Sisyphus pushing this boulder uphill. She is caught in this time triangle, reliving this over and over again, coming to the same realizations over and over again, um, killing her friends over and over again, to in, a, in an attempt, in a useless attempt, to try to reset things because she thinks she can. You know that's her own hubris, but in reality she has to endure the punishment um, that is. The endure the punishment, and as it turns out, so as the as once um, <clears throat> once Mean Jess gets you know kicked off the ship, literally knocked off the ship, and wakes up uh, wakes up in the uh, wakes up on the shoreline, she hitchhikes hitchhikes back home, and we see that she is um, the beginning of the movie. We have a, a scene of Jess getting ready to go on this boat trip. Um, she's talking to her son, and there's a, a couple of there's like some stuff happens, and it, her son gets freaked out. Um, there's like a ring at the doorbell, whatever. And it just, did, you know, there's some general kind of mayhem. We're not really sure. Not mayhem. That's over the top. Like there's a little bit of a, a issue with her son before she's going on this boat trip. And, but we're clearly missing parts of it. But we get to see the missing parts of it after Jess gets ejected from the ship. Um, Jess is seeing, is goes to her own home to see that she's back at the beginning uh, when she was getting ready for this boat trip with her son. And uh, it turns out that she spooks her son, which causes an issue with current Jess, I guess. And we see that um, we see that Jess is actually a bad mother. She slaps her son, saying, "You know, why can't you just be a normal kid? I just, I just want one, you know, one day with you, just not being the way you are." Blah blah blah, that kind of stuff. And so Jess takes it upon herself, thinking that she, this is how you solve the loop. 
Jess takes it upon herself to kill her past self. And then, um, you know, unfortunately her son witnesses it and, um, you know, she tries to kind of play it off like nothing's happening. And we see the the final culmination of this is um, Jess getting into a car accident. Um, and I'll, I'll get into this car accident a little bit later. Jess gets into a car accident, kills herself, kills her son, and is now we are, you know, in case if, in case if you were still not fully aware of what's going on, we see... Um, uh, we see uh, Jess is sort of watching this accident from like a third person, you know, out of an out of body experience kind of uh, point of view, I guess. So, sorry, there was a lot of explanation that just went into the into the end of that movie, but <clears throat> the point being that Jess is Jess has to relive this over and over and over again. She has to relive the death of her son over and over again. She has to relive the death of her friends over and over and over again. This is her boulder that she has to push uphill this is her punishment for breaking a deal with death which again we will talk about here in a second so overall um overall there's not much i did not like about this movie like i said and whenever we do reviews we got to do a little bit of didn't like and like so there's a, a very minimal amount about this movie that i didn't like um most of it is kind of the wonky cgi from you know about 2009 but it doesn't really last long there's clearly kind of points where we have a we have like what seems like a very early iteration of of the volume where they shoot like the star wars and marvel stuff um you know to get like the to get the backgrounds and it it feels like a very early version of that and you can kind of see some of the wonky locational cgi doesn't look quite right um but once they get on the ship you know that's all fine It, it it doesn't in fact the ship was um uh, the the front of the ship was actually built on a um it was actually a physical set that was built on a piece of um on a piece of land that stretched out uh into the uh you know off the coast of australia off the coast of queensland um but that actually kind of gets into my second point here that i don't recall that i didn't like i just didn't understand this so other than the director all these people are australian or new zealanders um melissa george is australian Henry Nixon is Australian. Uh, Michael Dorman is from New Zealand. Rachel Carpani, Carpani is Australian. I I have no idea, but they're all using American accents in this. I have no idea why we're pretending they're Americans, why we're pretending this is America. Um, it's supposed to be Miami. Um, I, I, I don't understand like why we did that step, especially since this movie did not come out in theaters in the United States. And boy, some of these people, I, I don't know what it is about Australian accents. They seem to just have a harder time kind of flattening them out enough to seem American. Just every now and then in the movie, you'd hear someone swearing or like yelling or whatever. And they'd borderline sound like, oi, oi, mate. Like it, it gets close to that. So I, I don't know. I don't understand why this mattered necessarily. Uh, why it couldn't have just been set in, um, why couldn't it have just been set in Queensland? In fact, there's like, well, here's the next point. It's supposed to be set in Miami, and it's very clearly not Miami. Like, anyone who has ever been to Miami or Florida at all would look around and go, this isn't Florida. I, I just, I'm not really sure why they bothered with any of this, given given that we're not actually leaning into the Bermuda Triangle mythology at all. Even though the movie is called Triangle, and it takes place on a ship, there is, like, no mention of the Bermuda Triangle at all. There's no mention of, you know, other ships. No one even says it. 
that like, well, you know, ships have been lost to the Bermuda Triangle before. And the Bermuda Triangle does actually start, uh, I shouldn't say it starts, but um, South Florida, Miami, whatever. I, I think it's really more, a little bit farther south than Miami, but um, but South Florida for sure, for sure is one of the points on the Bermuda Triangle. It's South Florida, Bermuda, and then it goes all the way over to Puerto Rico, and then from Puerto Rico back across to South Florida. Um, so, I mean, obviously they are within range of the Bermuda Triangle, but we're not, again, we're not getting into that mythology. We are actually very deep into Greek mythology and um, and more of the Christian idea of purgatory. Um, so, yeah, so again, Bermuda Triangle mythology, not really, it's not mentioned at all. Um, the only other, you know, Greg's ship is called Triangle. Um, you know, so that's, you know, that's, I guess the, the ship is the, is the title, but I, I just, I guess I just didn't see the importance of making these people American when it would have been totally fine to have all these people be Australian, to have it take place in Queensland. Um, in fact, like there's a, a sign that says, um, you know, it's like return to the sun or welcome back or whatever to the sunshine state. Um, and it has like a, a little bit of floor. You can see like the little, um, on the, on the road sign, you can see like the outline of the shape of Florida in the corner. Queensland is also called the sunshine state. So it like, it clearly was a sign that's there. They just, they just stuck a sticker on it, a big sticker on it that looks like Florida, uh, for that particular piece of the scene. Um, it could have just been Australian and it wouldn't have mattered. But again, this is the stuff I didn't like is so very minimal, um, in terms of this movie that it, it, it doesn't even matter. Like I literally, I really had to pick at this because I don't think, Story-wise, plot-wise, performance-wise, I think, I, I think it's all solid. Otherwise, um, it's just it's very nitpicky stuff that just, again, I whenever I whenever I review movies or think holistically about movies, I always try to find something that I, I shouldn't say I try to find things that I don't like, but there are always things that stand out and I'm like, well, why did this even matter? So that's more. I could say this section is really more. Why did this even matter? But anyway, let's get onto the stuff that I did like. There is lots of stuff to like here. We get these early hints that there is a lot of weirdness afoot, right? Right from the beginning, as I mentioned, <clears throat> we're missing some stuff that happens in the beginning of the movie um, that we get to see uh, once we get to, once we get to that far end of the triangle. Right? There was the doorbell uh, being rung at Jesse's house that uh, um, you know was just kind of seemingly out of nowhere. It doesn't. It doesn't really. Uh, literally until the very end of the movie, it doesn't amount to anything. Um, there's the odd interaction with Tommy where um, she's she's seem you know he's kind of on his own, then she's suddenly consoling him, saying you know talking about his bad dreams or whatever. And we we understand that later his bad dream was him watching his mother murder his mother with a hammer in a very brutal manner. Um, you know at the beginning we see Jess in. She does a sudden change of clothing, but then we're we're, we're watching her, you know, because she leans into um, some paint that Tommy spilled or whatever. But but we're seeing her pack away briefly, pack away the um, uh, what looks like the the the, st the stained dress into uh, into a bag, uh, and and you know we see that at the beginning and at the end. We and when we come back and see the scene at the end, we realize that is just stuffing her dead body into into a bag. Um, and then we see at the very beginning how disconnected she seems and kind of out of it until she, you know, until she falls asleep and seems to regain herself. Like, you know, it, it could be, you know, we're, we're led to believe that at the very beginning it's the stress of of her, you know, raising this, um, you know, raising a child with special needs and, 
you know, how much attention goes into it. And even though there's like an incongruous bit of story, you know, she admit, she immediately tells Victor at the beginning that uh, her son is going to going to school, and you know, Victor tells Victor tells Greg that like Jess isn't okay, you know, like hey, there's no school on on Saturday, and, and Greg goes, well, he's special needs. It's one of those schools that, and there are schools like that, like right that that have um, you know weekend availability for people that for kids that have more advanced needs um than than some you know than than someone maybe who is not that not that far into the spectrum um so there's like an easy way to kind of explain it wave it away at the beginning until then we see it at the end um and then when she falls asleep she definitely kind of seems to regain herself quite a bit and it makes sense right like you know you you're tired you're exhausted you've been dealing with your kid all day um you just want to take a quick nap but it turns out that nap is literally the mental reset to beginning the loop or beginning the triangle over again. Um, like I said, there's there's a lot of so that, those are like the early hints and stuff that like if you're paying attention, they come back and really reward you. Um, Melissa George is very solid. Um, Melissa George has been in a lot of stuff that I like. She's always a very consistent uh, actress. Um, she's very solid here, and she has to be because she is on screen through almost it's got to be ninety five percent of this movie. Um, she shoulders so much of this movie and she has to be pretty solid in it. And she is, and she's believably, she is, she plays each version of Jess in a very believable manner from new Jess being kind of panicked and unaware, savior Jess, you know, kind of like, okay, I understand some of the rules and now I'm going to try to circumvent them to save everybody. And then she does a great job, a really great job as mean Jess, someone with such razor sharp resolve that she's ready to kill everyone um, just to get back to her kid, including killing herself uh, to get back to her kid. Um, so Melissa George, very solid here. I love that when, once we get on the ship, everything in terms of the storytelling and all the action becomes very nice and tight with little hints about what's what's to come or little hints about you know some of the some of the background information, right? So like when we first get on the ship, we get a lot of POV shots from like stairwells and um, down railings and stuff as if suggesting someone is watching and someone is watching um, as we see later those same pov shots are various versions of jess watching um you know watching the group watching each each time watching the group get on the ship or move throughout the ship uh, we get the little clues about the ship's origin and what that might mean for the story like i said like there's a, a picture of the there's a picture of the eolus um, from, I think it's, they give the year of the ship as being 1932. Um, I'm not sure if specifically the year 1932 means anything. Um, uh, but there is like sort of, you know, they give the, the depth, you know, they give the background information for who Aeolus is, um, was in, in Greek mythology is in Greek. I don't know. Is or was in Greek mythology. Um, you know, the, the God of the winds. And there's a kind of an, actually an interesting sort of aside here. There's depending on there's, there is a collective sort of, um, a collective sort of, uh, I guess, sort of um, understanding for who Aeolus was in Greek mythology, but depending on which um, which Greek history you visit, there are, th- and this fits right in, fits right in with the theme of the movie. There are three different versions of Aeolus, um, and the the modern kind of interpretation is that so like de- the modern interpretation is that like it's all of them are all of them are the same god Aeolus. But if you know, it would have, my guess is it would have depended on where you were, in you know, in in Greece at the time, you know, which 
which you know which part of the of the Greek I guess not empire but one of the Greek civilizations probably had their own and, and at different times too would have had their own definitions of who Aeolus was, but they kind of give the general outline of who Aeolus was and you know they mention that he's the father of Sisyphus and that Sisyphus is you know he's the one pushing the rock up the hills boulder up the hills I already mentioned and uh, he's he his punishment for you know cheating cheating death getting out of a pact with death um is this this is punishment to do a useless task over and over again um and, and there's you know there's and there's glimpses of the various jesses on the ship um obviously we we get a little bit more in depth with that once we get through the first um once we get through the first leg of the triangle um you you realize like who's you realize you know that we're who's who and what we're seeing but then you realize that some of the sounds and some of the glimpses of people are are you know which jest is this at which point in time or which at which end of the triangle are, are we getting to when we see these, when we see this person um and as we advance further in the triangle there are some excellent visual clues to give us like this the understanding of the scope of what's actually happening so we have this one scene where we get where it's Savior Jess and me and Jess are all in the same, uh, are in the same scene with uh, Downey and Sally. Um, and Savior Jess very brutally murders. Uh, Downey stabs him to death um, and stabs Sally, although she she gets she gets away and is able to kind of crawl uh, away from Mean Jess. But Savior Jess finds her, and we get, we get the scope of like exactly how long this triangle has been going on how long this causal loop has been extended. So we see um, uh, Savior just follows this blood trail and opens up to this one deck on the ship. And it's like this. It is filled with at least from, at least when I paused and counted, it's at least 30 dead Sallies, um, all stabbed, all stabbed in the stomach in the same manner. All of them crawling to various points on this deck to try to get away from Jess, from me and Jess, not realizing it's, that it's Savior Jess. And you see they're all lying there with um, with Jess's sweater kind of wrapped around her midsection, um, you know, try to stop the bleeding. And then we see her have this, con- you know, this final confrontation with Sally saying, I didn't do this. It, it wasn't me. It was it was the other Jess. Um, it was the other Jess. Um, you know, once, once I, f- I figure this out, I can save us all and get us off the ship. And then you see her you know, put the, uh, put the sweater around her and wrap it on her, try to stop the bleeding. And then she dies. And so you, you get that like really cool sort of that cool sort of visual, like, Oh shit. Like there's, this has been going on for way longer than, than even Jess realizes. Um, there's also a, um, there's also a portion where we see, um, a very kind of ominous sort of, um, ominous sort of clue where she, where she looks down as she's like rifling through like a, I guess it could be like a crewman section where they had like uniforms and stuff. And there's a bunch of notes, crumpled up notes on the ground and she opens it up. It says, uh, so I think it says, um, uh, you know, you need, you need to kill them all to, to, to get off the boat. And she's kind of looking at it and like this note is written over and over and over again, probably at least like a couple dozen times. And she takes open a, she finds an empty piece of, you know, blank piece of paper and, you know, recognizes the handwriting, writes out, you need, you need to kill everyone on the boat or you need to kill everyone to get off the boat or to reset the boat. I can't remember exactly what it says. Um, she writes it out and she realizes it's her handwriting, um, that she's done, she's done that particular note at least looks like probably 20 to 30 times. 
um, there's a there's a moment where she's you know looking at the the heart pendant uh, around her neck of her son and her, and it, it falls down into a grate and there's like a pile of them down in this grate. So again, once we get on the boat, the action gets really tight, um, and then we get and the kills are are, are fairly solid. They, I, something that I'll, I'll talk about here in a minute. Solid kills, action's nice and tight, and we get all these visual clues that this triangle has been going on for a very, very, very long time. Um, so the ending, and I think the ending is really, really great. Like, again, kind of speaking to sort of the bleak tone of New Weird, this is really bleak. So as I mentioned before, we see the car accident. Um, you know, Sally, Sally, excuse me, uh, Jess sees the car accident kind of from, a, or the aftermath of the car accident that she causes, um, you know, kills her and her son kind of from an outer, out of body sort of point of view, but we get the, the whole thing is great. So after, after Sally or God damn, I keep doing that after Jess goes back and kills herself and loads her body into the car and takes off with Tommy, her son to go, uh, meet up, meet up with everyone and get on the boat. She hits a seagull and it's, another another nice little note um another nice little note about like sailing and stuff it is extraordinary ba- extraordinarily bad luck to kill or injure uh, some kind of seabird so you know be it a, a be it a seagull be it an osprey something like that it is a it is a bad omen and you're going to curse your ship if you uh if if you were to kill you know if you were to shoot or kill or somehow accidentally kill one of those uh, one of the seabirds so they're considered good luck you know you want those birds flying along with you um you definitely don't want to hurt them so as sally or god damn it four six nine um as jess is um as jess is driving uh she strikes a seagull and and crushes it on her windshield there's you know seagull guts all over the place this really upsets her son um and you know he's freaking out so she's you know again this is we're at the end of the movie now. She thinks that she's figured out a way to close the loop by killing herself, or I guess end the triangle by killing herself. She goes, you know, picks up the seagull. I was half expecting her to hit by a car or something, but she picks up the seagull, walks over to the edge of the road, and she's about to throw it in. And she has this like, she stops and stares down, and very much like we look down and we see this huge pile of rotting dead seagulls, like twenty to thirty of them. All in the same spot. All of them were clearly, you know, all of them were clearly killed and thrown there. It wasn't just like one or like clearly killed and thrown there. Exactly like the rotting Sally's that indicate that are a clear indication that Jess is still very much now potentially very much back on the triangle. Um, she is not even close to ending this thing when we see these dead rotting seagulls everywhere. And then, like I said, then we, uh, you know, she's her son's freaking out about things. Um, her son's freaking out about the, the seagull. She goes to, you know, she's looking back and trying to talk to him while driving. She skids in front of, uh, and gets hit by a, a semi truck. It flips them. And then she's now, you know, there's like this aftermath. We see, um, there's some visual clues about stuff that happens in the movie. There's a, uh, there's a marching band that was practicing nearby that is kind of over to, to see the aftermath of the accident. Um, and on the drum is the alpha and omega symbol that we see at various points on the Aeolus, um, which also is the you know, the symbol for the beginning and the end. Um, the music that the band is playing is a song that we hear on the ship as well. Uh, <clears throat> seeing all that. So, and we, obviously we see Jess watching the, the aftermath of the accident. Uh, when a, 
when a driver approaches her and offers her to, you know, ask her where she wants to go. And it's very clearly, it's very clearly the, the ferryman Charon, right? We are deep into Greek mythology here. Uh, Mrs. Charon has showed up to escort her to the afterlife. And he takes her in her cab and, you know, he tells her basically there's nothing you can do for the boy. So, you know, don't even worry about it. Um, so he takes her and he offers to take her anywhere. And she, you know, says to take me to the harbor. So she goes down to the harbor and she has a brief, brief discussion with the driver, uh, this guy in the cab. Um, he opens the door and she, he just says, I'll leave the meter running. And he says, you'll be back, right? And she says, yes, I'll be back. I promise. And very much like Sisyphus breaking his deal with death, she breaks her deal with the ferryman and thus restarts the uh, restarts the uh, the triangle again. Um, it is very much left up to you to, to kind of figure out. Again, I like this very much. This ending, these sort of bleak kind of, I wouldn't call them open endings because it's not an open ending. We know what, exactly what's going to happen. But but like I, I think her, I think it leaves open the um, the interpretation of why she she goes back to try to fix things. Is it hubris? You know, thinking that like, okay, I now I've lived through this. I know everything. I can go back and do it, despite the visual signs that she has failed so many times. The dead seagulls, the dead sallies, all of the various notes and stuff like that. She has failed so many times. And yet she thinks that failure is going to help her then succeed, um, even though she's taking up a Sisyphean task. So is it hubris or is it guilt that she knows that she's going to fail? But this is the only way that she can see fit to punish herself, that she has to just live this awful singular day over and over again and see her son die over and over again and see her friends die over and over again, simply out of guilt because she just can't. She can't, I don't know if she feels like she deserves to be punished, whatever. But it, it is important to note that the driver, that the ferryman, does leave her the option of coming back and taking her anywhere else she wants to go. But she opts to stay in this Sisyphean purgatory instead. Whereas if she would just tell the ferryman, you know, take me someplace else, take me, whatever. I I think the the there's at least a an implied sort of, if not... Not very overt, but there's just like a little subtle implication that if she wants things to end, they could end. So it is kind of up to you. Is it hubris or is it guilt that this triangle of uh, this this triangle of despair uh, continues for her? So as far as any changes go, I don't think I would make any major ones. I think this is one of the few times um, this is one of the few times where we could use an extra scene or two on the ship to flesh out some of the characters and their relationships. Like we get a, we get kind of a, uh, an info dump about how everyone knows everyone at the beginning. And it's, and it's totally fine. It, like it's very, it's very usable, right? Um, it's very usable information, but I wouldn't mind having a, a few more, like one or two, literally just one or two more scenes. What amounts to maybe 15 more minutes to flesh out the characters a little bit, maybe even weave in a little bit more mystery about what's going on before we reveal who the stalkers, the, uh, or slasher uh, is aka before we get to we figure out that mean jess that jess is mean jess right the final jess um it would it would have been pretty good to to have a little bit more um woven in there um woven in there scene wise to uh maybe even explanation wise to kind of to kind of uh just bulk it up a little bit um again this is just one of those things like let these damn aussies and kiwis use their accents just set it in queensland where it was filmed 
especially since you're not leaning into the Bermuda Triangle mythology explicitly, it, it just doesn't matter that this takes place in Australia. And it's very, trust me, when they when they show this woman driving, you know, around what is supposed to be like this harbor in Miami, I guess it's supposed to be like the Biscayne Bay or whatever. It is so visibly not Miami. It's unbelievable. But like, who gives a shit? It doesn't, not again, not that that even matters, but it's just like, who gives a shit? Just let them, just let them be Aussies and Kiwis, use their accents, be totally fine. I, even though there is like one very violent kill in this movie, uh, Mean Jess kills Downey, uh, well, she kills Downey multiple times, but one of the times she kills him, she stabs him to death with uh, like a box cutter. And it, it's pretty gruesome. Um, it, it's, it's pretty gruesome, but I feel like, I feel like if this movie could have been more violent. I, I, I know it's, that sounds weird, but really other than other than that one kill on Downey and the odd way that Victor uh, dies, it's really not that violent. Like it's, it's stalker, it's mean Jess basically shooting everybody or, you know, whatever, or in a couple cases, just stabbing Sally in a kind of a really not that brutal manner. Um, this could have been more violent. And I say that because mean Jess is clearly, it mean Jess is the culmination of a lot of emotional trauma and a lot of gore that she's already seen previously. So it feels like she should be more of a, excuse me, I had a cough there. She should be more of a violent psychopathic mess <clears throat> by the time we get to the end of the movie. Um, or by the time we really get to the full uh, mean Jess kind of uh, portion of the, of the triangle. Uh, I would also make the ship a little creepier. You know, despite it being like this super supernatural, potentially cursed ship, it feels a little sterile. Um, and I think that's just part that was probably just part of, uh, you know, budgetary constraints. Like, again, like they built like the the sort of front deck of this ship. So it like it, it does. And that does look more realistic and everything else. But it just feels a little bit sterile. And obviously there's no one on it besides the people that are there that have been cursed to be there um, in purgatory. But it just doesn't feel like it has enough character right so we have some like visuals and stuff like there's a portion where they're in this theater and you have um again the ship's called the eolus and we have this like visual representation of eolus um you know blowing uh blow clearly blowing once you like once you kind of notice it clearly blowing um the triangle the the uh, greg's yacht their yacht clearly blowing their yacht over in this in this theater it's kind of like a <clears throat> almost like a it almost looks like a really cool high school level sort of backdrop for a play is what it looks like um so like that's there and that's kind of cool and you get some there's like a there's like a picture of like i said there's a picture of the ship from like the 1930s and it kind of gave like a brief history of who eolus was and we get some you know some other background information on eolus and sisyphus but like it, it just feels like we needed something to make this thing feel more timeless and like the I, this is something that I, I actually did have a very concrete idea about what I would change. So we have this picture of the ship from 1932, and you can you know whatever. I, I would this movie is borrowing some stuff thematically and also directly heavily from The Shining. Um, and like the room, there's a there's a scene in a room where and guess what guess what number the room is? What cabin the room is? Number two thirty seven, um, where we where we get some blood writing on a mirror telling, giving instructions to, um, you know, at, for the first time we see it is giving instructions for everyone to go to the theater. And the second time we see it, it's giving instructions from 
savior Jess to mean Jess, um, you know, telling her to do something. Um, so we're in terms of that, and also kind of in terms of this idea of being this sort of very circular purgatory kind of supernatural place, you know, that's being borrowed. Um, that's being borrowed heavily from The Shining as well. Um, so I figure if you're going to go ahead and do that kind of homage to The Shining, which is totally cool, um, I would kind of, I would go the route of, um, again, this is where like an extra scene would come in. I would go the route of the photo of uh, Jack Torrance showing him at the 4th of July party in 1921. Um, you know, so what, like 60 years prior or whatever. Um, and this idea that the the Overlook um, you know, is like sort of this like has is like this is like reincarnating Jack Torrance over and over again throughout the decades. Um, I would kind of pay further homage to that by having like a scene where as we're walking down, you know, as people are we're discovering the ship, it could even be the beginning. Maybe it would kind of make sense more sense towards the middle to kind of ratchet up uh, the tension a little bit. I would have like you'd have like one photo of the ship from 1932 and maybe even like a photo of the crew from 1932. And then you have a photo of the crew from like 1952 or it could be like crew and um, guests for like, especially, you know, big parties, you know, it could be a July 4th party on the ship if you want to, or a new year's party on the ship if you want to. And in every single picture, it's the same people over and over and over and over again, decade by decade by decade. Um, You know, so, you know, to, to simultaneously pay homage to the shining and also for, you know, to give like a little bit more, character to the ship and kind of give a little bit more uh you know a little bit more suggestion that like shit is really fucking weird on this ship um but otherwise i i really don't think that there's a lot that i would change i i really think that this was you know this isn't one of those <clears throat> when when uh chum and i used to do the um used to do the cinema dissections it was kind of the idea was was kind of explaining why this was or was not a perfect movie and i think more often than not, we fell on, for most of our cinema dissections, we fell on the side of it being a perfect movie. This clearly isn't a perfect movie, but this is a very enjoyable movie. Um, the, again, the kind of, the idea of, of the idea of making this sort of re- recon- reconfiguring how, how we think of time slip movies and making it Again, making it more of an actual directional triangle, like a visual triangle is how you would see this kind of play out. Um, you know, tying it into some, you know, tying it in directly into mythological stories and also tying it into, um, you know, modern, you know, modern religious parables and modern religious, um, uh, you know, modern religious punishment, I guess. I don't know what I'm going for there, but I just think this is this was definitely very clever. It was a lot of fun. I, I think what does make it pretty great is that it's not too long, so we're not. This this feels like if we were to make this today, if someone, if Christopher Smith were to come to some major studio today with this idea, it would turn into a series and it would go too long, or the movie would be like two and a half hours, and it would be too long. Um, I, I think every, I think this is just a nice little. This is a nice little treat. Um, I I can't imagine. I can't imagine that I would necessarily see this in theaters, but I think it plays really well um, as a plays really well as a um, having a, having a couple of casual drinks on a Saturday night. You want to watch something different? This definitely fits the bill for that. This is a solid. This is a solid B B minus type of movie that has some interesting things to say. Has it definitely has an interesting concept? 
has some good performances from uh, pretty reliable actors and Liam Hemsworth. Um, so I think I think overall this is this was like I said this was a treat to review. Um, I'm kind of upset that I didn't discover this movie earlier, but I'm glad I did at all. Um, <clears throat> there are some things that would change. Um, there are some things that could be a little bit more clear in terms of in terms of uh, what is actually going on. But I think that that sort of I think that that sort of um, uh, uh, obscuring what's actually happening really works in its favor and kind of makes the ending even more rewarding. So I am all on board. Uh, pun completely intended with Triangle. I think you should get on board as well. And that is it. That wraps up this movie review and that wraps up Sci-Fi September. This was a blast. Um, I really had a very good time diving into especially diving into the early history of of science fiction uh science fiction entertainment and science fiction media was a lot of fun um and i and i kind of i kind of realized unintentionally that i brought it full circle um with i brought it full circle with something that is you know diving into this movie is kind of diving into like i said greek mythology and stuff and going all the way back to the very beginning um you know the very first episodes you know, talking about how science fiction really science fiction really stretches all the way back to our earliest myths and creation stories from ancient Greece, from ancient Rome, um, you know, from ancient India, all over the place. Right. And so it just kind of feels like it, this ties a nice bow on, um, feels like it just ties a nice bow on, uh, this whole, this whole month to have a movie that calls back to Greek mythology. So definitely was a fun time. Uh, glad that it's glad that it's wrapped up because I am, I am ready to move on to the next thing, uh, and which is so excited because this is always. I think this is this is usually my favorite um, theme month of the year when we come up to our fright fest. Um, so I am ready to dive headfirst into all things horror, and again, feels like a good jump off point. Uh, this movie kind of again a, a very horror adjacent, butting up against the, the horror genre a little bit. Um, in a in a sort of um, in a secondary or tertiary way, um, so it feels like a good jumping off point um, to get into our fifth annual fright fest. I'm very excited for that. Um, there'll be I'll have more information for you in the coming in the next week or so on that. But for now, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. We will catch you next time.